to episode 53 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us today. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by an all-star cast of Steptoe lawyers. Uh, our usual uh, uh, cast includes Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Uh, so, Jason, uh, I'm going to let you uh, nominate your story of the week. Um, I'd, I'd say, although I seem to only nominate stories that I'm going to talk about, I think that the anthem breach is probably the, one of the biggest stories of the week. Yeah, I, I think we do want to hear about that. Uh, and we're joined by Michael Battis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, Michael, uh, what's your candidate? I'd have to say Bob Dylan's remarkable speech at the Grammys last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I completely missed that. I was going to say the anthem breach, but Jason stole my thunder, so I'm going with Dylan. Okay. What did he say? Uh, he uh, spoke about the influences on his music, um, old blues, and he had uh, some pointed comments about other artists, ones that he thought were not worth much and ones that he thought were great. He also said he thought it was long past time for Congress to pass cybersecurity legislation. <laughs> I, I kind of believe that. Uh, okay. Uh, other, our other uh, guests today are Doug Cantor, who's a partner in our uh, government affairs and public policy group here in Washington, uh, and Stephanie Roy, uh, a partner in our telecom, internet, and media group, uh, um, uh, both of whom are going to talk about uh, uh, topics directly uh, in their wheelhouse. Uh, uh, our guest commentator uh, uh, is uh, going to be Alex uh, um, Klingberg, uh, Klingberg uh, who uh, uh, is um, being interviewed here in Paris, which is where I'm phoning this in from. Uh, uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS. I'm the record holder for returning to Stepto to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's get started, actually, with Jason's uh, story of the week, the Anthem hack. So, Stuart, I think as most people have heard by now, uh, Anthem, which is the, by some measure, the second largest health insurance company in the U.S., was breached, and, and the breach impacted a database that had personal information of as many as 80 million customers and employees, including the CEO of the company, which he was quick to point out. Um, and the database contained apparently not health insurance information or credit card information, but it did contain names and social security numbers and email addresses and some income information. Um, Two of the more interesting things about the story are, number one, the press reports the data was not encrypted. Uh, an apparent concession to the need to make the data readily available, Anthem reportedly encrypted it in transit but not in rest. So the hackers were able to get the data in, in plain text form. That itself is not necessarily a HIPAA violation. You know, the HHS and HIPAA strongly recommend encryption but don't necessarily require it. And the second interesting thing about the breach, besides the magnitude of it, um, Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post, friend of the podcast, was one of the first to report that China is suspected of culpability in the breach, and it may be that Anthem is only one of several healthcare companies targeted by Chinese hackers. The information uh, that was at risk here is the kind that's valuable economically, and it's also valuable for intelligence purposes, and China, of course, has denied involvement. And I think that one of the takeaways here is that uh, it's further indication that the healthcare industry is way behind retailers and financial institutions in preparing themselves for uh, cyber uh, threats. And Anthem now can join the parade of big companies that are looking, can look forward to litigation and an HHS investigation. In Anthem's case, that's a particularly problematic thing because just two years ago, uh, Anthem paid a penalty of almost uh, $1.8 million relating to security lapses that exposed Social Security numbers for about uh, more than half a million people. Yep, we just got to line up those victims and, uh, and shoot them. Uh, uh, meanwhile, China is apparently putting together some massive database on every American and their health care, and uh, um, the privacy groups are campaigning against uh, doing anything that might help stop that. Uh, it's kind of remarkable. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, um, jump into the other big news story of the uh, uh, week last week, which was uh, net neutrality. We got a uh, an announcement from the chairman that uh, he's actually circulating some monster proposal that uh, is going to go uh, very far toward meeting the uh, the demands of the net roots on uh, net neutrality. Yeah, Stephanie, uh, uh, can you give us a little more detail? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, chairman Wheeler of the FCC uh, announced that he would be proposing for a vote uh, later this month at the FCC's. Uh, 
monthly meeting, uh, net neutrality proposal that would, uh, classify broadband internet access as a Title II common carrier service, uh, and including both in its wired and in its wireless forms, uh, which, uh, as you may recall, the 2010 open internet rules, uh, treated wireless differently, uh, as a more nascent. Yeah, that was, the, that was the Verizon, that was the Verizon Google treaty, wasn't it? Uh, apparently, and it seems to have, uh, the, the irony here is that Verizon Wireless is, was the, you know, lead, uh, plaintiff in the suit overturning those 2010 rules. Uh, or Verizon more broadly, not Verizon Wireless, excuse me, but uh, and they maybe face a situation where both their wired and their wireless uh, uh, services are now going to be subject to more stringent regulations under Title II, although the FCC has propo- is proposing, we understand, broad forbearance for many of the, quote, common carrier um, uh, powers that they do have. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a long road ahead. Uh, we have not seen this proposal yet. Uh, supposedly, it's some 300 pages. Uh, Commissioner Pai um, uh, published a blog uh, bemoaning the fact that he could not actually release the entirety of it to the public prior to the FCC's vote. The FCC's policy is that uh, items are not released to the public until they, uh, the commissioners uh, vote the item out. Um, and here that will happen at the last week of the month when the FCC has their open meeting. And... Um, uh, things are afoot, though. Uh, Representative Chaffetz has asked for all correspondence, papers, and um, communications between the FCC and the White House uh, because this comes on the heels of uh, President Obama's November 11th uh, 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 video in which he urged the FCC to adopt Title II. Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily just prior to that, but last year, Representative uh, um, excuse me, Chairman Wheeler had proposed a uh, more nuanced and um, some would say more complex and less actually uh, firmly footed uh, application uh, of non-Title II FCC authority to get at net neutrality regulations. And uh, many would argue that uh, Chairman Wheeler was moving toward the Title II approach based upon the almost 4 million public comments received in the net neutrality docket uh, as of the yeah, late Somehow, I'm guessing, I'm guessing the video was pretty persuasive, too. I video persuasive, but uh, he's uh, just a, a very loud voice, but a voice at the FCC. So we'll see what comes out of uh, Representative Chavitt's uh, expedition there into the correspondence between the FCC and the White House. Um, also, we have legislation by Congress um, proposed to uh, not to prevent the FCC from regulating net neutrality, but to impose net neutrality regulations, but prevent the FCC from expanding upon those real regulations, and some might say from really acting effectively to enforce them, too, going forward. Surely there's going to be a veto threat over that. The likelihood that legislation can get out in time to, to head this off strikes me as pretty remote. I believe so, too, especially given everything else that's on Congress's plate um, uh, this month and in the near future. Of course, remember, these are only um, uh, the the rules are um, will have to go through several stages before they're actually um, uh, enforced. They have to be published in the Federal Register. They have to go through the um, Paperwork Reduction Act process. So there's a bit of time yet. Uh, uh, yeah. but let, me, let me ask you the one thing that I'm hearing from uh, uh, all my friends in the network community. Uh, uh, the uh, notice on this said uh, uh, you won't be able to throttle lawful um, uh, traffic. Uh, and there seems to be nervousness that um, that's how, that's code for letting the uh, uh, the interests that are pursuing uh, piracy claims uh, uh, some ability to uh, uh, tinker with the, the download speeds. Um, do you have any sense about uh, what it really means to uh, say you know you can't uh, throttle lawful traffic? Well, I, I haven't heard that particular variant, but I. Don't think it's intended to affect the other aspects of, of say, life on the internet, uh, compliance with takedown uh, notices and things like that. Um, of course, you know there are, will be advocates 
that may try to leverage it, uh, I wouldn't, uh, there's always, uh, those players, but I, I don't think, uh, it's go- directed at, um, affecting, uh, um, the policing, I would say, you know, or, or under other statutes of, of, uh, of infringing content. All right. Uh, well, it, we, we have more time to evaluate, and eventually we'll get to read all 300 pages uh, ourselves. Uh, uh, Jason, uh, uh, broker-dealers got uh, some security notices uh, uh, recently. How serious is that? Well, I, there were two reports that came out in close uh, in time to each other, uh, one by the SEC's Office of Compliance, Inspections, and Examinations, and the other by FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. And they're both sort of warning shots to uh, investment banks and broker brokerage firms about the need for improvements in their cyber readiness. And, and the reports were basically uh, uh, observations on the state of readiness for cyber attacks among those types of firms. The SEC report was based on a year-long study of about 100 registered uh, investment advisors and broker-dealers. And among the more interesting observations they made were that the vast majority of those firms had been the subject of some kind of cyber incident or attempted cyber incident. Um, the uh, And one of the observations they made that, that FINRA also made is that even among those firms that have focused attention on their own cybersecurity, uh, they were uh, did not do an adequate job, if any job, of focusing on the cybersecurity of their vendors, uh, especially vendors that had access to their networks. Vendor management is critical for all companies, including financial institutions, to make sure that your vendors have cybersecurity obligations imposed on them by contract. And, and the, the SEC so also... That means, that means law firms too, right? It means law firms too. We, we're, we're vendors these days. <laughs> That's right. Um, and they provided some guidelines that were sort of fundamental stuff about strong passwords, two-step, uh, two-factor authentication that would be helpful in protecting online accounts. Um, FINRA made the same observation about vendor management. They also noticed that as many as 20% of the 20 firms that they studied did not have a real security program in place. They also noted that many broker-dealers don't have cyber insurance, which is one of the things they recommended the firms consider. Um, notably, the FINRA also recommended that, that firm, uh, brokerage firms um, develop, implement, and test instant response plans, which, as you know, is something that we preach here all the time, um, so that they are they know they have a plan in place and, and have tested it before an incident occurs. Um, and they also recommend better training in cybersecurity for employees, since employees are often the, the first line of, of attack through spear phishing and other means. So both reports together, I think, recommend uh, uh, represent both uh, constructive guidance for broker-dealers, but also an indication of the degree to which the financial regulators are taking cybersecurity seriously. As we often joke, if you have an acronym and you have any potential cybersecurity jurisdiction, you're exercising it now, and this is certainly a further indication of that. Yep, uh, that sounds exactly right. They're they're fixing to uh, uh, to slap somebody, but uh, they haven't done it yet. Uh, um, one of the things I wanted to get to uh, uh, was to ask Doug Cantor to talk a little bit about where all of the legislation on the Hill is going. Before we do that, I should probably just note three or four stories that in other circumstances we might spend, have spent more time on. Uh, the president has come out with somewhat modified NSA data collection rules uh, right after we uh, uh, talked to Becky Richards. Uh, she was uh, uh, visibly uh, uh, eager to talk about them and unable to. Uh, uh, they're pretty modest, in my view. Uh, um, the PCLOB released a report card for the administration on how it's doing and carrying out the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board's recommendations, and uh, by and large, the administration got either a passing grade or an incomplete uh, in progress. Uh, uh, the UK uh, uh, went to court and was told that uh, uh, its, uh, the, its intelligence agency's access to NSA's data was illegal because uh, nobody in the public knew about it, but now that they do it, uh, thanks to Snowden, it is legal. So, uh, uh, you know, Edward Snowden has legalized what uh, the UK is doing by exposing it. Uh, and uh, Jeff Carr, who was on uh, a couple weeks ago talking about uh, uh, the attribution uh, issue uh, in the Sony case, uh, has just published a report uh, saying he's found evidence that at least one Russian hacker had access to Sony files uh, and has proved it uh, by sending files that hadn't been released by the original hackers. Uh, uh, that he pr- 
seems to think that that uh, casts some doubt, but not uh, conclusive doubt on the uh, North Korean uh, attribution. My guess is it, it's consistent with what the uh, FBI has, has been saying. Either there was more than one hacker in Sony's files, or the uh, Koreans uh, hired themselves some help. Uh, uh, so that's that's a quick roundup of NSA-related uh, news. And, and now, Doug, if you would wouldn't mind, there's three or four different stories that are kicking around about bills that might actually pass. The president put forward three of them and came up with a $14 billion uh, uh, cybersecurity budget. Uh, um, is any of this going to pass? And if so, which uh, of those bills is most likely? So I think some of it will pass. Let me start first with the president, because uh, as you point out, he's been active in this area. And I think our early nominee for the story of this coming week is going to be the president hosting this cybersecurity summit on Friday at Stanford. Nobody can bring attention to these issues like having the president do an event. And so that will clearly crystallize a lot of this, including the president's budget request for $14 billion uh, that uh, he wants to help step up the federal government's efforts not only to protect its own data and, and federal government security, but also to help uh, more broadly protect uh, private industry as well. We'll see if he gets some momentum around that budget request uh, this Friday. But he will also push for Congress to do its part. And there are a number of things that clearly have some bipartisan support here. One is information sharing legislation. Uh, the House and Senate have both moved and kicked around different aspects of information sharing legislation for a couple of years now. And they've consistently been thwarted by uh, the privacy groups and by the administration, frankly, uh, giving some support to those privacy groups to stop that from happening. Yeah, this, this was this was the, the the president sent a veto message as the uh, cybersecurity CISPA was uh, on the floor, if I remember right, uh, uh, about to get a bipartisan uh, a majority, uh, and um, it really did poison the well. I, I have to say, I've never talked to somebody in the White House, and I've had several conversations where I've complained about that veto message, and no one has ever defended it. It's uh, I, I think the, the White House is really regretting that and probably would take it back if they could. Well, they may have a chance this year. I think the House and Senate probably will come together over some form of information sharing, with the one wild card being when the privacy groups complain, who will listen, and, and most specifically, will the administration act the way they've acted in the past, or will they try to help get this done? I think if they try to help get it done, it'll happen. Yeah, my, my, I think there is a new enthusiasm or maybe a different set of players, uh, or maybe the president has said, this is my one shot at some bipartisan uh, uh, legislative achievement, uh, and so uh, it may be that the privacy groups won't have quite as easy a time getting the president to line up with them. I think that's right, and I think we'll get a sense of that on Friday, where <laughs> the president will most likely talk about the need for that type of legislation and how he couches that will be telling as to which which way they may cut this time around. And what about the Republicans? you think they also want to do uh, an information sharing bill? I think they do. Uh, private industry strongly behind it. Uh, there's been uh, pretty strong Republican support for some type of information sharing bill for a while. I think they're ready to move something if they think it can become law. How about da national data breach? That's, the, that's something that I, we've talked about. It's a little unusual to have a, uh, a Democrat supporting uh, something that preempts state law, especially state tort law. Um, uh, do you think that that has a prospect as well? Well, you're pointing to exactly the right factor, and that is preemption. The Senate Commerce Committee had a hearing on this issue last week. There's bipartisan support for a national data breach law. Uh, industry, by and large, is asking for a national data breach law. They're saying, hey, regulate us here and make these laws uniform. Uh, Republicans want to do it, clearly, and, and, and preempt the states. Democrats have consistently 
said that it makes sense, but so far there has been a reluctance around, gee, wait a minute, how far does preemption go? And I think there has been, uh, among both members and the staff working on it, a universal recognition that preemption does make sense here. That's one of the reasons you would have a national data breach law is to deal with some harmonization of the 47 state laws and the four territorial and district laws uh, that are out there on top of it. But how far does that preemption go? Is it just of those laws? Uh, what about tort law that that uh, are brought on, on state claims that build off of the data breach law? There's a lot of difficult, detailed questions that get into it, and that question could not be answered well at the Senate Commerce hearing uh, last week or the House Energy and Commerce hearing the week before. That's going to continue to be a point of contention uh, unless the the folks negotiating the, the bill can come up with a nice compromise, which they are trying to do and could happen, but for the moment, um, that's the sticking point. You know, Doug, when, when I was in the department, oh. I think we, we proposed, uh, the administration proposed a data breach, national data breach standard every year that I was overseeing the computer crime program. And, and I think, as I recall, the way we tried to split the baby on preemption was to have, uh, a, a national standard that would, of course, preempt the 47 state uh, standards, 46 at that time, 47 now, but that would also preserve the ability for the state AGs to use civil enforcement remedies so that their enforcement powers uh, were not uh, restricted, but that the standard that had to be met was uniform. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we got nowhere, you know, even among members of the Judiciary Committee, which was our committee, who said they supported it when push came to shove, it never really uh, went anywhere at all. And I, my thought after Target and Home Depot was that there's just, and so many other breaches, was that the sheer magnitude of these breaches would drive this bill long before now. So it's sort of shocking to me that we're still having this conversation in 2015. And we'll keep having it. This is Washington. There's just no end to how long we can prolong a conversation. Look, we've been talking about net neutrality since 2002. <laughs> there you go. There you go. What about, speaking of uh, endless conversations, uh, Criminal Law Tweaks, the uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, uh, do you or Jason see those passing? I suspect those are going to turn out to be more controversial than either of the other two bills. I I think that's probably right. Uh, You know, ECPA reform is one I would look at as uh, needing to happen and and perhaps more likely to happen. Uh, uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse, I think, uh, may be somewhat tougher, but everybody recognizes that uh, something needs to happen with uh, the privacy of electronic communications and the fact that it hasn't been updated in so long that uh, none of the current scheme uh, makes sense anymore. Not, not that that requires Congress to actually do something, but it at least makes people uh, have second thoughts and, and wonder why it is they haven't done anything in that long. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that the CFA issue is much more complicated and controversial than the ECPA issues are, in part because notwithstanding the overheated rhetoric, I read in press release after press release among members who have proposed ECPA reform legislation um, who create the impression that there's a lawless society in which law enforcement is, is scooping up uh, uh, private communications without any legal process. The reality is the 180-day rule has been either dead or in a coma since 2010 uh, when the, the Sixth Circuit uh, in the Warshark case uh, essentially ruled that a warrant was required, and there was a race to that standard by providers. So effectively, since 2010, federal law enforcement has been living under a warrant for all content standard. In March of 2013, uh, my former colleague, Alana Terangel, testified, uh, I can't remember if it was House or Senate side, that the department was now formally uh, acknowledging that it would not oppose a warrant for all content requirement, a legislative change to eliminate the 180-day rule. So it's kind of, I mean, again, I guess this is my uh, uh, naivete about Washington, which I shouldn't have anymore, um, that when there's no opposition, the provider supported the uh, DOJ is withdrawing its opposition to it, um, and privacy groups favor it, you would think that it would have been passed a long time ago. If, uh, But I think as between the CFA and ECPA, ECPA's got a much better chance of moving forward. I think the I think the hold up there probably now is the SEC and maybe the Consumer uh, uh, Finance Protection Board, uh, uh, which 
uh, at least the SEC and I suspect uh, the other uh, board uh, use subpoenas all the time without uh, uh, getting uh, 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 probable cause and they don't want to have to change. so uh, this this is going to end up pitting the people who hate the banks and love Elizabeth Warren against the people who uh, really believe in privacy. Uh, so it'll be a it'll turn out to be a tougher vote than than people expected. You know, uh, it's also worth right, last, well, last question. Say, Stuart, it's also worth noting uh, congressional committees don't have search warrant authority either. So congressional investigative committees use subpoenas to get data like this as well. So it's going to be a change in their practice too. I'm sure that would break the administration's heart. Uh, okay, uh, last question. 30-second answer. Uh, is the president's $14 billion going to end up in the budget? Of course not. Nothing's going to look exactly like the budget he proposed, but he'll get a lot of that money, and uh, there will be horse trading along the way, as there always is. It, there's too much political heat around these issues now for Congress to allow him to blame them for not funding it. So he'll get he'll get a significant piece of the money. All right. Uh, thank you very much. That was a great uh, short summary of where we are legislatively. Uh, uh, and now I recorded the uh, um, the interview separately. So let's turn to that. All right. Uh, uh, this is Stuart Baker. We're doing our interview now, uh, uh, and I am taking advantage of the fact that we have this uh, cool new equipment that allows me to go mobile. Uh, everybody's heard about the fact that we're going to do a, a, a Vermont interview with Julie Brill next week, but I am in Paris this week, uh, and uh, yeah, eat your heart out. I, I am uh, uh, meeting with Alex Klimberg. I, I thought it would be great to uh, uh, interview him here. So welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. Uh, Alex is a former advisor at a senior level to the Austrian government on cybersecurity affairs. He's now with the uh, Harvard Kennedy School uh, Belfer Center uh, and also with the Hague Center for uh, Strategic Studies. Uh, he's been doing uh, cybersecurity policy since he drafted a report, I guess, well, the first European Parliament report on cybersecurity? Certainly one of them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, welcome. Well, I thought we, uh, we ought to talk about, uh, though we can uh, diverge toward the end if there's other things we ought to be talking about, uh, uh, is the uh, uh, European approach to cybersecurity, especially the European Union. Uh, uh, one of the things that um, people haven't paid enough attention to, I suspect, is uh, a directive, partly because it's been going through an extraordinarily long process uh, uh, in the European bureaucracy uh, uh, on uh, cybersecurity that uh, is going to be a bit of a contrast to the U.S. approach. Uh, um, Alex, what's the basic uh, uh, requirement that, uh, or set of requirements that the uh, uh, directive imposes? So the Network and Information Security Directive, the NIS Directive, was a core element of the uh, EU cybersecurity strategy, which was uh, published in 2012. So two years ago, the uh, European Commission, which originated the proposal, came out with this directive, which effectively was supposed to apply primarily to critical infrastructure protection context. Now, now this, is, this, is, this is the commission that no longer exists, right? They've been completely replaced. Absolutely, that's right. So that was actually in the last commission, which always makes for a little bit of a hiccup, but, you know, the commission is not the only body as part of the legislative process in the EU. It's an extraordinarily complicated process, but people have a lot of experience with it, so it doesn't actually take um, as long as one might think, two years is about the average for one piece of legislation to work. So the way, the way it basically works is first the Commission proposes, it goes to the European Parliament, they approve it, it goes to the representatives of the European nation states, the Council, uh, the exactly. council mm-hmm. uh, and they approve it. And in theory, that's it, it, it it's done. But uh, it looks as though this thing is kind of bouncing back and forth like a volleyball. Uh, Absolutely, that's exactly right. So the, the council actually, uh, to my knowledge, in any case, approved it. Um, however, then it still goes to one final measure, which is the presidency. Um, which the presidency is responsible for for sharpening the whole process. So right now the Council and the European Parliament still have equal rights in making changes to the proposal. Um, the, doc, the last changes were made uh, around uh, December. Um, the last official published version, or it's actually not published version of the NIS directive uh, proposal is from mid-January. So effectively... 
there are some elements still left open, um, even though it's it's very, very, very close. And the, unfortunately, the elements that are still left open for discussion are probably the most contentious. So the, the, the broad, in broad outline, uh, the directive, as I remember it, as it originally came out, said every uh, member of the European Union has to have a cybersecurity strategy, has to have a national uh, uh, contact point uh, that will oversee this, uh, and it has to have a CERT, uh, uh, a computer emergency response team. And then, probably most important for the private sector, everybody in certain critical infrastructure sectors has to report any breaches to the government and what to ENISA, the the, mm-hmm. the cybersecurity arm of the European Union. So the original proposal included market operators as a term. So it basically uh, required all market operators to be involved in this mandatory breach notification process. Market operators, of course, is a very wide term. Nobody had any idea really what it meant, and of course went through a period of revision. This term has been adjusted a little bit. It went there was a, there was suggestions to apply it to critical infrastructure providers, um, but now the current uh, the current state of affairs is that the, the NIS mandatory breach notification requirement is going to apply to the following categories: energy, credit and stock exchanges, transport, so-called internet enablers, as well as public administration. Now, this was the compromise that is most recent. It's not even done yet, but it's in the final draft of the paper that has, been, has not been made public yet. Ah, does this mean they took out some and put some in? The current categories, as they have, as the sectors, if you will, are energy, credit and stock exchange, transport, so-called internet enablers, and the public administration. Now, the internet enabler category is, of course, a very wide term, and there's been a lot of discussion on what that includes. What it probably doesn't include and which would have been implied in the original market operator terminology is a company like Facebook, for instance, maybe even Google. So that is a, a bit of a change. It will, however, still include ISPs for sure. Okay. So um, ISPs will be in. I, it, it always struck me as a little silly to say uh, Facebook is a critical infrastructure. Quite. But then again, they do hold a lot of uh, uh, public, identifiable, public identifiable information, right? So... Um, Yes, the PI. So, so, uh, personally identified. Sorry, personal identifiable, personal identifiable information. Please take that out. <laughs> so they do have a lot of personal identifiable information. Um, so that is uh, a major concern for other directives, not for the NIS directive per se. So what the NIS directive does is it establishes the so-called mandatory beach reporting requirements, but also these have been changed quite substantially. So in the current draft version, which is a cause for concern in my view, it has been watered down sufficiently that now the question is about the provision of core services, and in particular, the, particular the continuity of provision of core services. So I, I, I can understand why they would think that ISPs were critical to that. Hmm. Uh, but ISPs have been in and out, is that right? Uh, no, ISPs are always, oh, always, always in. in. Yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, there's been back and forth about things like search engines and social uh, media platforms, and it sounds as though... Uh, after putting them in, the, uh, the final decision is probably going to be to leave them out. Uh, probably. Search engines, I think, will be taken out because they don't really work with the term Internet enablers. But that might change in the final negotiation stage. The real point for me is not necessarily what sectors it includes. I think it's more important to find out what this actually does, what needs to be reported. Yes. Okay. I, and uh, what is supposed to be reported? Well, as, as I said before, the current... The current uh, proposal has this terminology of the continuity of provision of core services. So basically, they they moved away from from terminology based on standard information security definitions, such as confidentiality, integrity, and availability, and have invented this new term, continuity of the provision of core services. So this means that you know in the U.S. we've got all this notification of breaches. Hmm. Uh, the breaches are focused on the exposure of personally identifiable information, hmm. not on whether you can actually continue to provide services in the future. Uh, so you could have major compromises of your network hmm. uh, that are not reportable if it doesn't have if they, the people who did it didn't get access to personally identifiable information. That's exactly one reason why this directive was created. So this directive uh, kind of like fell into the same timeline as CISPA did in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the difference is, is that the two, the two bits of 
uh, of legislation that you just mentioned that exists already in the U.S., they're going to be covered in other legislation, in particular the so-called data protection package. Ah, yes, okay. So they're going to do the PII notification Absolutely. under data protection. So they don't need to do it here. Exactly. Okay. So they are going to, so the data protection package will include two bits of legislation. One is the general data protection regulation. A regulation is, is, uh, mandatory exactly as it's written, so there's no room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. And the second bit is the data protection directive. A data protection directive, directives, uh, have, uh, some leeway of interpretation on the secondary legislation at the national level. The data protection directive is more interested in, uh, law enforcement issues. However, both directives are very specific about the need to collect all data on a person, a probable breach of one's personal identifiable information and a need to communicate this to the, the third party, to the victim. So the, in the U.S., um, defense industries are subject to a requirement that they disclose breaches that raise questions about access to the network as opposed to, it's not so much focused on can we continue to provide service, but um, is it possible that uh, an intruder got access to uh, sensitive defense information? So the U.S. has begun to go beyond PII as a focus of notification, and they notify, uh, the defense contractors notify the Defense Department, but um, there is no obligation to say, I think someone has intruded in a way that is designed to, uh, say, cut off power. Right. So this is um, part of my problem with the current state of the regulation, is that it only stipulates the need to to uh, report a breach if that breach has resulted in a compromise of the core service. In other words, uh, a, what you're talking about, a computer network exploitation breach, i.e. a cyber espionage breach, would not necessarily fall in that category unless it violated, for instance, individual's PII, which is uncovered under this other piece of legislation, or is so severe that they had to shut down, shut down the entire network to be able to find out exactly what was um, explored. So, for instance, the example you just gave on power, for instance, and uh, electricity, some, if somebody is just scouting the network and and is doing so without actually causing disruption to services, either because they haven't touched anything critical or... I don't feel the need as the operator of that critical infrastructure to unplug the network, um, then probably would not be reported. And I, I personally have a real problem with that. That's, that's a little bizarre because if there's one thing you probably don't need to report, it's things that cause outages because those yes, are the apparent. <laughs> exactly. So this is exactly the one of the two problems that have really arisen with the NIS directive. So uh, not only have they changed the, the, the range of industry sectors that are involved, which could be positive, could be negative, depending on your political stance, really. Right. But what, in my view, is undeniably negative is to impose reporting requirements um, that effectively are not going to tell us some of the most interesting things. So they're not going to be much, very operationally useful. Um, it's important to understand that there is a there is a precedent for all of this. This is not the first piece of legislation that does this. There's something called the Telecom Framework Directive. Oh, uh, yeah. So they, the reason they didn't lose te- include telecom operators is they're already subject to Absolutely. something like this. Absolutely. Article 14A, Telecom Framework Directive. And, and that one, however, also indicates where all this might end up, because basically the Article 14A in Telecom Framework Directive only really applies to uh, basically, uh, basically to overall trends. So it gives you great statistical information on 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 what type of threat is is rising or falling, but it is not operationally very useful beyond that. It's very useful to have this data just to have a general idea how things are developing, but it doesn't actually help an operational cyber. Cybersecurity. So it's 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 a little bit more focused on giving governments uh, information that allows them to maintain sort of general situational awareness. Uh, exactly. That's exactly the idea, and that was the level of ambition that people thought was was achievable. So the European Network Information Security Agency, ENISA, um, which reports to DJ Connect and has a function of a clearinghouse of information within the EU on cyber issues. They use that type of information, for instance, the Telecom Framework Directive information, to produce, for instance, reports on the rise of mobile malware, for instance. Um, so, so they have managed to produce very interesting studies on this, but it's trend analysis rather than operational day-to-day uh, uh, cybersecurity information. And so it is useful, they, they but it has to understand the limits. I mean, this is not something where they're tying people in electronically so that they can respond immediately. It's more 
you know, you wait for the PDF? It's pretty much that. It's exactly that, actually, because in the end, we're not talking about the exchange of malware samples or CVEs or IOCs or any other of the technical good stuff that makes up the day-to-day work in cybersecurity. We're talking about a very abstracted level of that, so which is necessary. It has to be said, is necessary, but it's it's a wrong uh, idea to think that this is the the answer to all the problems. This is the beginning of the answer. Yeah, I did, it's it, it, exactly. It's a, it, it's necessary, but not sufficient to achieve security. So uh, this strikes me as having looked at the original uh, proposal as as a real carving back of the original ambitions of the people who wrote it. Absolutely. And that's that's why I think it's one of the two big setbacks uh, that uh, the NIS directive has experienced because this is really going to limit um, the scope of its uh, applicability and its usability. Uh, it depends how they define the provision of core service. Uh, if they think the provision of core service is also called in doubt, for instance, due, let's say, to a serious espionage attack, then that would be interesting. But presently, I don't think that's possible. It doesn't make much sense otherwise. So the, if I remember, there's a fair amount of discretion. After all, it's a directive, not a regulation. Uh, in uh, the local governments, uh, if the Germans want to turn this into something more ambitious, hmm. do they have enough leeway to do it? Absolutely. So there's two bits to that. First of all, it's explicitly noted without the legislation that you can go to a higher degree if you want to. That's repeated actually quite often. And secondly, as you point, pointed out, uh, a directive requires uh, implementation within through secondary legislation. So effectively, unlike regulation, which is immediately law in entirety, second secondary legislation is required for a directive, which means you have leeway to implement it. You can't go underneath the level stipulated in the directive. You can always go above. So this, then this sounds like we're going to have... And the Germans did, I have to say. So the Germans did, in fact, go way beyond that. So the Germans are much more... They've, they've been enthusiastic about, about regulation in this area for a while. Uh, and so this gives them another basis if they wanted one, if they needed one. Uh, and I would have thought the French would probably follow suit as well. In fact, of course, yeah. Even some, a lot of the French wording is, is clearly apparent in the proposal. They talk about, for instance... Uh, uh, vital infrastructure instead of critical infrastructure, which is a clear example, as the French refer to that critical infrastructure as vital infrastructure, which sounds much more positive. Yes, it so does. Uh, a, um, well, and and I, I, I've, I've never forgotten uh, uh, the uh, a, a translation of the Chinese uh, uh, and back into English, mm-hmm. their, their critical infrastructure. They, it, it, when it came back in English, uh, uh, it was infrastructure critical of the government. <laughs> uh, and uh, I thought, well, maybe in, in China that is critical. I, but I, I, I think vital uh, makes the point. Uh, and if I remember right, every country gets to sort of tap its industry on the shoulder and says, by the way, you're vital or you're yes. critical. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's actually another component to the um, NIS directive, which needs to be pointed out, that it, where, where it dovetails with... Uh, European Program for Critical Infrastructure Protection, the EPSIP program, which has been going on for a million years. Well, seven years, really, but that's pretty long in, in, in cyber terms. Um, and that is the importance of cross-border uh, uh, dynamics. So effectively, one of, the, one of the elements that are being really closely negotiated is breaches that need to be notified because they might impinge on another nation, a member state. So this aspect has been strengthened within the directive, uh, it was kind of um, strange that it wasn't in there to begin with in a strong way, given all the other bits of European legislation that refer to that. But effectively, the the current draft has strengthened the provision for governments in defining, not only governments, but also the Commission, in defining a critical infrastructure breach as being important, as being something that has to be reported to ENISA, for instance, which is probably going to be the body that they stipulate as the European Central Body, but also to the European points of contact, where it also needs to be reported to, simply on the basis that cross-border critical infrastructure is something that plays a bigger role well, in this. Is there anything in transport? Is there anything in, inter- in energy? Is there anything in ISP's uh, activities that wouldn't uh, raise questions across borders? It's sort of hard to believe that uh, uh, given the amount of integration, especially when you look at uh, uh, cross-border stuff in um, uh, uh, 
Belgium or uh, Holland or Luxembourg, uh, uh, those guys are going to be affected directly by anything that happens in France. Uh, maybe there are things that happen in the UK that are less likely to be uh, cross-channel. Uh, but it seems to me this is going to result in a lot of disclosures. I think that was probably the back door that they left themselves to be able to to uh, pick that up on if necessary. But again, we're talking about interruption or or uh, of core services, so we right. still don't know exactly what that means. They moved away from standard information security terminology of confidentiality, integrity, availability. Um, by the sound of it, we're only talking about attacks, actual attacks, computer network attacks. Uh, and if it really gets to that point or stays at that level, then then, then there's definitely been a lost opportunity here because effectively a lot of people are going to be required to impl- implement a lot of exp- expensive reporting requirements, but they're, they're going to miss 90% of the problem. So one of one of my concerns in, in this area is that uh, one, one of my concerns in the area is that uh, uh, where I, I should say we're uh, doing this over a year, so uh, uh, what can I well, say? I mean, come on, eat, cyber. Get your heart out. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, the industrial control systems, the SCADA systems that run things like our power uh, grid or uh, natural gas pipelines and a lot of transport are so rudimentary that you don't have forensics that allow you to figure out what happened when something fails. Uh, and so if there are interruptions, the interruption will be known, but whether it has to do with cyber insecurity, I think is often going to be uncertain. Uh, are you obliged to disclose it if you don't know for sure it was a cyber incident? So, I mean, I think actually that, that similar to, to non-industrial control system environment, there, you, you can actually, uh, find a malware sample when, in, in an industrial control system or a SCADA system. And you can try to reverse engineer it, and you can do a lot of the good stuff that you do in normal, so-called normal uh, ICT environments. But um, the question is more, I think, for me, how much does the operational cyber security actually immediately benefit from such a bit of legislation? And that's why I want to come back to my second mm-hmm. problem with the present legislation, which is, uh, which was a real surprise for me, is that it stipulates completely new in the current version that I've been reading that. Uh, a new C-cert, so they uh, had understood that cert, of course, is a trademark term and the, and the general term is C-cert, that there should be a C-cert network amongst the government's uh, government cert, government C-cert capabilities in the European member states, i.e., there should be a special closed network for government certs in Europe. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is this exists already. And this is the European Government CERT Group. This is a separate body that has nothing to do with the EU that was set up about five, six years ago, um, similar to many other institutions in Europe. This this looks to you a little bit like Europe sort of saying, here's something that works when we take it over. It was, it's, it's a blatant power grab. And the thing is, is that this is, this, this, if it works, it's a disaster. Because the European Government CERT Group was like other initiatives which function on a, Simple partnership level throughout the EU has, throughout the European Union area, has nothing to do with EU institutions per se. And they have their own rules. That means not everyone automatically is granted entry to this club. To be a part of this club, you have to be a trustworthy actor that has real power to disconnect systems if necessary. You have to be mandated by your government. And effectively, um, just because you happen to be the only guy in your village who happens to be able to do information security, doesn't mean you get to be part of this club. Yeah. So this this uh, was a major reason why the European Government Cert Group is probably one of the most potent groups but this is, worldwide. This, and this, this might be this, called this, into doubt now. This is consistent with my experience when I talk to people about cybersecurity and how you do information sharing, really. Yes, I uh, You do it based on whether you know the people that you're sharing it with Absolutely. Uh, and you have confidence that they're on your side and that they're competent to uh, uh, keep the information confidential if necessary. Uh, and that only can be done with some kind of um, informal trust. You can't just mandate it. You can't Absolutely. say, you know, Romania is in the European Union and therefore their cert must be part of the network. Absolutely. You've hit it, hit it, a nail on the head there, actually. Um, this is part of the problem is that th- that is a community-based network, even if they're all government certs, they have their own rules. Um, they are not subject to political contingency. In other words, all member states have to be part of it. They will exclude people and freeze people out. 
and also because all of the certs involved are not necessarily are not part of the law enforcement community or at least centered in law enforcement. They might bend the rules a little bit in terms of data protection issues if they have to, if they need to. Um, as you correctly pointed out, um, proper information security uh, exchange, information security information exchange, uh, i.e. The, the day-to-day work of certs is largely in the gray area that is not covered well by any national legislation. Very often is outright illegal. Um, and you don't really want to have the police in that kind of exchange, and therefore governments have figured out ways around that. And now, however, we had a beautiful s- solution to a very complex problem. How do you have officially mandated government agencies engage with what, what may, may be a breach of the law now and then? And now they're going to come and uh, create a whole new body, which will have political requirements, such as all member states have to be in there, uh, probably have a bureaucracy associated with it, and, of course, will be in the public spotlight. So, effectively, they might actually manage to cause the biggest damage to European cybersecurity. By breaking down the informal trust. By breaking down the informal trust group that what, basically what, what, maintains what, it in the, in the Europe today. What were the legal um, doubts about what was being done inside the CERT? Well, they haven't mentioned the European government CERT group by name. Um, when I wrote the uh, 2011 European Parliament report, which effectively was one of the, uh, uh, the antecedents of the present European cybersecurity strategy and indeed was referenced repeatedly in the strategy. Um, one of the things that I explicitly pointed out was do not touch the European government cert group. Leave it alone. Right. Um, just like you don't have access to non-state community networks doesn't mean you should have access to all other government networks. So, but I assume the CERT group was a little worried about the lawfulness of what of some of the information they were exchanging. I, I don't want to, to, to leave it there that their activities are illegal. But the point is, is that uh, I, I would say that 80-90% of those activities and information exchange that occurs is legal under all, man, all national legislations. But sometimes you might be put in a situation where you need to exchange information that necessarily... That might be legal to your might be legal to your partner, but not not maybe legal for you or vice versa. Is this mainly PII? Uh, I don't want to get into details, okay. but it's uh, since this is the day to day work of certs, you can imagine that some of this has to do with uh, with with uh, PII that is clearly accessible due to due to, for instance, IP numbers or similar. But it can even be even more further reaching than that and have to do with individuals or companies or countries or things like that. And in that context, given the fact that it has not come through a proper law enforcement or intelligent network, it becomes an issue of, is this a violation of data protection, for instance? And, yeah. and that is... And we're actually struggling with this in the U.S. as we try to figure out how to draft legislation, uh, uh, CISPA, CISA, uh, because the Europe, the privacy groups are saying, oh, we want to make sure that you've eliminated uh, personally identifiable information. But, of course, the uh, the IP address from which the malware is sent is personally identifiable information, mm. and that's exactly what you need. Or the uh, um, uh, the uh, Gmail account that's sure. being used. Sure. Uh, and so you can't say, don't send personally identifiable information. You need to say, uh, if you can easily get rid of personally identifiable information without undermining the value of the cybersecurity information, then that's a, that's a, at least a plausible uh, goal. Sure. I mean, the thing is, is that pseudo-anonymization, which has been standard practice in the industry for years, doesn't really work once you have lots of bits of data to compare things with. Because then, of course, you can restore uh, the likely the likelihood of it being a specific person, IP address, or but I, whatever. You know, under 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 uh, the data protection directives, you can uh, provide personally identifiable information if it's necessary to protect uh, your business, the user. Uh, uh, so uh, there there are ways to do this. Uh, yes. you just have to. Uh, have uh, the data protection authorities agree that it's a good idea, which of course absolutely. And I think this is also um, some of the positive aspects of this legislative bundle that is coming through the system is that supposedly, and I know much less about this, the data protection directive, which is uh, again mostly mostly concentrating on uh, issues around uh, criminal uh, criminal prosecution and law enforcement, will make life a lot easier for law enforcement for mutual law enforcement exchanges uh, on MLAT similar between the U.S. and Europe. So there, I have witnessed firsthand the number of problems between, between, in, in law enforcement type cooperation between uh, European and U.S. entities. And, uh, 
very often it's it's the U.S. interpretation of what the European law is that has been the problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, this might go some way to identify and alleviate some of the problems you have in actual criminal prosecution cases. So, uh, bottom line for uh, for U.S. policymakers and and maybe U.S. companies, it sounds as though this uh, um, network uh, security directive is likely to be less worrisome than it looked uh, originally from the from the point of view of regulation, uh, and probably will end up meaning we get better ANISA reports, uh, and we may see more aggressive regulation in the countries that are most inclined toward regulation, which is the center of Europe. So there was a, a re- interesting report that came out at the beginning of January from FireEye and uh, I think IDC Connect, although I might be getting that wrong, and they pulled a whole bunch of companies on, on their view of, for instance, the NIS directive, and it was quite interesting to note that it was a, it was a largely positive response. So about 45%, I think, or 46% of the respondents. So um, they were ready to... No, 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 not ready. Most people were not ready, but they thought it was it would have a very positive effect. So there was actually an overwhelming positive, positive response from the private companies that were being asked to implement this. However, I have my doubts because they were, I think they were asking the IT company, the IT guys. Well, <laughs> at last, people <laughs> exactly. will pay attention to me. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not so sure that they might have gotten completely the right. Well, picture. it's also possible, and and I think this is this is likely the case in the United States that uh, this is edging up on taking this very seriously and on imposing consequences to. Uh, on, on companies who have problems and don't take it seriously. Uh, in the U.S., it's theoretically voluntary, but all of the regulatory agencies are now taking the, the NIST cybersecurity framework and working it into their regulatory uh, um, regime. Uh, and so for anybody uh, who's regulated uh, by the Communications uh, Commission or by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, they're going to have to uh, answer questions about failures uh, that they that means they all have to take another much closer look at their cybersecurity. And my guess is, even if technically this is only about uh, reporting on uh, actual interruptions in service, uh, uh, it means that management in all these European uh, uh, companies is going to have to look very hard at what their current cybersecurity practice is, recognizing they're going to get hauled over the coals if they've got nothing. I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, the NIS directive uh, is really, in first first and foremost, a question of faith. What do you think is generally better for cybersecurity? Um, I, I, I'm a little bit agnostic on that, so I, I'm really concerned mostly in what supports operational cyber, and with an operational cyber component, um, there's no question that it's really necessary to build awareness at higher levels. And that probably would be the result of the data protection uh, package. As, the, as for breaches within the data protection package, the costs can be extraordinarily high. I mean, their are, there are $100 million fine is, is definitely in the realm of possibility for companies that don't adhere to it. So that, that will definitely have some type of concentrating or focusing effect. But I think it's also important to, to consider the general approach that we're taking here. So... In the European context, the NIS directive has now gone, started off as something that would have required a wide-scale breach notification at a serious, at an operational level, um, and has moved away to that. So it's now, it's not really a light touch, it's still a hard touch, but it's not really generating as much information as would be helpful. And I think that's not really great. I think you need to commit to one side or the other. You can commit to a soft approach or to a hard approach, but I don't think it's very good to be in the middle of the two. Yeah. All right. Well, it does sound as though there's uh, quite a bit of change still coming, uh, and uh, uh, we will uh, be calling back to uh, to ask you uh, for further elaboration on this uh, uh, topic. Uh, uh, but uh, let me uh, first, uh, uh, you know, give you a chance to finish your beer and uh, uh, talk about uh, any um, books or uh, speeches you've got coming up. Well, I do have a book that is uh, uh, hopefully going to be delivered to my publisher, uh, Penguin Books, ah. by the end of this year. And uh, as a, 
as that is a very short timeline, um, uh, you can imagine I'm concentrating on that right now. Yeah, I don't, don't want to go into the details. Time to finish your beer. <laughs> I don't have to have time to finish my beer. I always have time to finish my beer. But essentially, uh, it's going to be about the overlap of the internet governance and international cybersecurity issues, and how both of these issues together are basically formulating the, the titanic struggle between governments and controlling the web and what this actually means for personal freedom. So I'm actually hoping that this will provide a little bit of a uh, input to the public discussion on cybersecurity because sometimes it feels like us experts just or people who think they know a little bit about the subject keep on talking to themselves and don't really manage to get uh, the true breadth of the problem across to the public. All right. Well, we're all going to be looking forward to it. Thank uh, you very much. Books. Thanks a lot. Thanks for that. Okay. Thank you very much, Alex. Uh, that uh, concludes our uh, presentation. Uh, uh, as a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback, uh, so send your questions or suggestions for candidates for interviews uh, uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you'd like to leave a message by phone, try us at uh, uh, 1-202-862-5785. This has been Episode 53 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by uh, Julie Brill from the FTC. Uh, uh, shortly thereafter, by Nula O'Connor, uh, President and CEO of Democ- uh, CDT, the Center for Democracy and Technology. And we hope you'll join us once again as we provide uh, insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.